Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun and his shoots spread over his garden. His, his roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. The religion of personal experience is probably the most dominant religion in the world. People are often led by their own experiences, their own thoughts, their own conclusions about the world and their own lives. It is what we call subjective religion, where everything must relate to me and to my experience for it to be true. Uh, But this is another way of setting ourselves up as gods to judge right from wrong simply and solely from experience. Now, God does reveal himself in nature, but because we are fallen and sinful, we have a tendency to twist the truth that he reveals in nature and exchange it for a lie and worship and serve the creature, even ourselves, rather than the creator. That is sinful human nature. We all do this. That is why God's natural revelation cannot save us. Natural revelation reveals God, and that revelation is true and reliable, but it does not present the gospel. For that, the Lord reveals himself, especially in his word and in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it is the same religion of personal experience that have led many to leave the church. When God doesn't do what we expect Him to do in our lives or even in the world, we blame Him or blame the church and we get up and leave. 
We give up because the world is not what we want it to be. We find out that the world isn't fair. And oftentimes it seems as if God is just letting bad things happen to good people. And we see this same experiential religion in Bildad's reasoning in his speech to Job. His speech is not all that different than Eliphaz's speech in chapters 4 and 5. It is just a little more angry and straightforward and not as long. He lacks sympathy and ignores Job's criticism so far in chapters 6 and 7. It is like he completely tuned him out and as Job was speaking, he wasn't listening. He was just thinking of what he was going to say next. Have we ever done that before in an argument? Then he jumps in and gives his two cents, that is only worth one, and he begins to speak concerning his view of God's justice. Now, to his credit, Bildad believes, as all Christians believe, that wickedness ought to be punished and righteous deeds ought to be rewarded. He desires fairness and he has a sense of justice, just like all of us. And we know that for any society to have stability and peace, There must be a well-governed justice system. So he imposes this worldly, limited view back on God. And just like Eliphaz before him, a lot of what he says sounds good, yet there is something missing from his theology. It is something that all sinners need, including Bildad. Many people who are caught up in false religion get this wrong as well. This is the same pattern of thinking that most religious people get wrong. So let us consider what Bildad gets wrong. First, he misinterprets the justice of God. Secondly, he relies on worldly tradition. Thirdly, he rejoices In his ignorance. So, first, he misinterprets the justice of God. The first thing to notice is Bildad's impatience with Job's impatience. He begins his speech with hypocrisy. He asks, How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth, a great wind? He calls him a windbag preaching hot air. He sounds like a snarky guy, doesn't he? He is impatient with Job after Job spoke for just a few minutes. This was just a few minutes of impatience after Job was patient for months. And Job's impatience doesn't mark all of Job's life. This is not his normal character. And Bildad should have known this as Job was a true believer. We should know this as believers. We often do things, say things. Think things that are out of character because we still have this sinful flesh that is at war with the spirit within us. So if anything, we ought to relate to Job. But Bildad had enough of Job and he believes that he had crossed the line when he questioned God's justice. But is that what Job did? Is that a fair assessment? Was Job questioning God's justice in chapters 6 and 7? Or was he asking God why? Because he didn't understand what was happening to him. As Peter would later say to Christians, though we can't explain why, but 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Bildad says, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Does God make crooked what is already straight? This was a rhetorical question that sounds like the author is quoting directly from Deuteronomy 32, speaking of God as his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. But what does that mean? Is God's justice instantaneous all the time? Well, for Bildad, his justice is performed in this world at some point in time. Bildad sounds like a Hindu or a Buddhist. It sounds like he believes in karma. You do good, good will come to you. If you do bad, bad will follow you. This is worldly religion. This marks most of the world's religions, going back to when pagans would war war with one another and they would go to war in the name of their gods. Uh, Whichever side won the war, it would mean that their gods won the war and the other gods lost or the other gods were cursing their own people. Again, in this system of religion, there is no room for forgiveness. And it sounds much like the prosperity gospel that dominates the way many Christians think about God today. If you work hard enough and do good to others, if you have faith, you will prosper in this life. Even Job would reason that God must have been upset with him for whatever reason. So here, we hear a lot about God's justice, but what about his goodness that is inseparable from his justice? What about his grace on how God is both just and justifier of all who have faith in him? For yes, he is judge, but is he also savior? And so this way of thinking about God tends to breed insensitivity because people just get what they deserve in this life. And often this belief system comes from a place of ignorance. Yet Bildad thinks he knows the state of Job's soul based on outwardly appearance and circumstance. He is suffering because he is depraved. That's what Bildad believed. How often do we think this way about other people who are in tough situations? It's all their fault without ever having the full story. This is just another example of how you can have strong convictions about something and still be wrong. Strong convictions does not validate what you believe. So first, he speaks of Job's children, then addresses Job himself. First, he says, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Talk about being brutal. He just clearly suggested that Job's ten children are dead because they sinned. As a friend, he would have known that this was one of Job's greatest concerns. He was concerned for his family's holiness. Job would offer sacrifices early in the morning in case his children sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Did or did not those sacrifices atone for their sins? Yet Bildad was careless with his words and careless about the state of Job's life. 
Now, am I saying that God never punishes wickedness in this world? Well, no. Think of our justice system and how it ought to run. You think of how David lost his child because of his sin with Bathsheba. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, they were struck down dead at that very moment. But is every case the same? Well, no. In those situations, it was clearly revealed in Scripture, special revelation, the reasons why they were killed. And these were indeed warnings about presuming on God's grace. But also think of all the times that you have lied. Think of all the times that you have deceived others. Maybe in the name of God on a Sunday morning. How is everything? Good. When you know it's not all good. Right? And isn't it true that God prolongs the lives of the wicked? He is patient, not wishing that any should perish. And he shows kindness to sinners so that all would come to repentance. See, Bildad has a simple system of religion, much like Eliphaz. And in this simple system, there is no grace, no sacrifice, no atonement for sin. And of course, this means there would be no cross of Christ later on. It would be foolish for an innocent man to die young in such a horrible way. He is looking at it from a judicial point of view only, black and white. And he doesn't realize that God works and orders the universe beyond our understanding. Bildad would never say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable. That means impossible to understand his ways. For Bildad, if you're a good guy, you are to expect good things. If you're a bad guy, you are to expect bad things. It is just that simple. It is like living in a fairy tale with a storybook ending where people just get what they deserve. But as many of you know, this is not reality. If everyone on this planet were to just get what they deserve from God, 100% of all of us would be in hell right now. That is what we deserve. Even when you consider all of our spirit-wrought works, that cannot save you. That cannot save you. Hell is what all of us deserve. And Job and all the believers who are sitting in these pews right now, we are what we are because of God's grace, unmerited favor. So based on this, do you think that God is going to forget his promises to Job or his promises to you after one moment of impatience? We never get what we deserve. And it is knowing that, being filled with the Spirit of God, that leads us to repent. And for Bildad and his self-righteousness and pride, he thinks, there is still hope for Job. He reasons, well, Job, you're not dead yet, so this may be a good sign for you. This must mean you're not as bad as your children were because you're still alive, unlike them. So you better repent now before it is too late. 
If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. If you are pure and upright. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait. Job was already declared to be upright. He was a believer. According to who? According to God. God declared it twice to Satan. But Bildad calls him to prove it. And surely then God will rouse or awake or stir himself up for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Wait, wait. Small beginnings? Job was the greatest of all people of the East, according to chapter 1, verse 3. What do you mean, small beginnings? He must mean where he found him at the beginning of his suffering, alone scraping himself on a trash heap. You can just imagine the arrogance of Bildad. But again, he promises prosperity and all Job's stuff back if he would just repent and seek God now. Again, there is no room for grace. And there is no room for suffering for the glory of God. In Bildad's system, there is no suffering that produces character, which produces hope. There is no rejoicing in suffering. Paul rejoiced in his suffering because he was suffering for the sake of Christ, his gospel, and his people. Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Job's suffering had a purpose and an end, and that was for the glory of God and the defeat of Satan. But none of that would have been true in Bildad's system. And partly it is because he relies on himself and his own understanding. Much like Eliphaz, he relied on his own experiences. Also, secondly... He relies on past worldly traditions. Listen to what he says. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? He is telling him, That he better listen to the past and what those who came before him have said. He can't reinvent the wheel. He hasn't lived long enough. But they have observed God's ways and proven them true. See, he is relying on previous generations and their traditions and wisdom. He is making their wisdom inerrant. Without error. Now, I am not making this a battle against tradition. Everyone has a tradition. Tradition is not a bad thing in itself. Every church has a tradition. The church universal and every denomination has a tradition. Even non-traditional people in churches. It is just their tradition not to have a tradition. Right? Tradition and wisdom of the past are not bad things in themselves. In fact, we ought to listen And remember the wisdom of those who have gone before us. In in that he is right. God has given the church teachers, including those who have gone before us, to equip the saints. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. This is why we have so many books to read. But we don't rely solely on past tradition and wisdom. You see, it is always a temptation for Christians to look... (laughs) 
to the past for the golden age to say if, if only things were the way they were back then, we wouldn't have all the problems we have today. Now, this is partly true. We would just have other problems, right? Uh, there has never been a generation on this planet that didn't face problems which resulted from human depravity and evil. Some will say, let us look back to the 1980s. No, skip that. That's when I was born. That's enough problems in itself. Well, what about the 60s and 70s? Well, that's when communism and socialism were making their inroads into our society and into the church, and now they dominate the narrative. What about the 40s and 50s? Well, you got World War II and all those lynchings that were going on by many who claimed to be Christians. What about the 20s and 30s? Well, that's when liberal pastors were influencing the church and liberalism began to take over our seminaries. Well, what about the 1800s? Well, you got the Civil War, Christians killing Christians, and then you had persecution of believers as they made their way toward the Western frontier. What about the 17? What about the 16? What about the 1500s? Well, you get my point. There has never been a golden age for Christians or for the church. Well, there has been, and it is when Jesus was raised. From the moment he was raised until now has been the golden age for the church. When we look and reason from the past and those who have gone before us, we learn from the good as well as from the bad. We learn from their wisdom and knowledge, but also we ought to learn from their mistakes And we learn from them by reading them in light of God's special revelation, in light of God's word. But here, Bildad relies on his own observations and he relies on past tradition. And what's missing is God's special revelation. Because that is what's needed here in Job's unique situation. He couldn't make sense of what happened based on what he, what he saw Job was going through. He lacked godly wisdom and insight. So it was better if he just remained quiet. Now, there is much that God reveals to us through nature and what we observe and we should learn from it. Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But what that revelation lacks is the gospel truth of God's grace and redemptive suffering, a suffering that leads to redemption. We don't get that when we walk into a hospital and we see all of these people suffering. We would just conclude Wow, God must hate us. But that is not true. And this is where Bildad lacked in his knowledge of God as he tried to apply his own form of wisdom. So in his attempt to give Job some hope, he shares a couple of proverbs with him. The first is in verses 11 through 15 where it speaks of what Bildad has observed about Job in his life so far. And verses 16 through 19 speaks of what lies in the future uh, for Job, if, if and only if he meets the conditions. First, he speaks of what he has observed by asking a couple of 
rhetorical questions that, that anticipated a no for an answer. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Here he is talking about uh, water plants which are common in Egypt, specifically in the Nile River. Uh, Papyrus and reeds tend to grow in warm climates and in swamp-like marsh areas. And and they can grow up to an average of 9 to 15 feet tall. But without water, they die. And if they have no water, while yet in flower, that means while they are young and not cut down, They wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. So he just said that those who forget God are like young plants who grow tall, but with no water, meaning without God, they wither and die. Who does that sound like? Who is he talking about here? It sounds like he is again talking about Job's ten young children who were in flower, but they withered or died because they were without God, according to his observations. Then he says, The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. Have you ever tried to put your hand out and lean on a spider's web in case you don't know it's not going to hold your weight, right? But what an illustration. Especially when you consider that he alludes to someone's house not being able to stand after Job's oldest son's house didn't stand and fell on all of Job's children and killed them. He said all this to accuse Job of putting all his hope and trust in his possessions, his career, his family, all things that are going to come and go and slip through his hands. These are all things that you can't hold on to forever. Now, Bildad says some true things, right? But for every word of counsel and for every truth that we communicate, there is a proper context. Right? One, this wasn't the time nor place to remind Job of this. I mean, you, you heard it before, you know? Maybe even at a funeral. Somebody's walking through the line, well, everybody dies. Cheer up, buddy. I mean, that's neither the time nor place. And second, It is all a false accusation disguised in a proverb. It was all false to begin with. But since Job is still around, he says, there is still hope for him. So secondly, he moves from speaking of the young papyrus that withers without water to a lush plant. Who is this lush plant? Well, it is speaking of the righteous and the fact that Job needs to prove himself as this lush plant. He is a lush plant, a plant with an abundant source of water that even before the sun, it will not wither. And his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. This is to say that his roots are so strong as he is rooted in God that his roots are able to spread through the stones. 
Uh, Remember the parable where Jesus said that some seeds are thrown on, on rocky soil and the plant springs up quickly because it has no root. It is scorched and withered, but not this plant. No. And if he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I have never seen you. So yes, he is saying, there will be times of suffering and low points in this righteous man's life. But behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the soil, others will spring. So here he is saying that Job has just experienced some setbacks. Some low points in life. But if he is truly righteous, it will only last for a moment. And in the end, if he is proven to be righteous, then he will prosper. He will be restored with all of his possessions again. Now, does that sound hopeful to you? Does that line up with what God has promised in his gospel? But remember, this silly little warning was meant for the ungodly. Has Job proven to be ungodly? Bildad is certain he has figured everything out, relying on himself and relying on past traditions. But has he? Does he have a wisdom from above? So thirdly, we see how he rejoices in his ignorance. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Now this sounds good on its own. In a sense, these are future promises for the believer to be fully realized only in heaven. But in context, Bildad is saying these will be all yours here in this life if and only if Job is pure and upright. And you always ask the question when you're reading this, like who? Like his friends? Be pure and upright like us, Job, and you will prosper like us. You will be in good health like us. Look at us. They were like the Pharisees. And if he is not pure and upright, he must repent. Then his misery will be gone. His enemies will be no more. He will laugh again and enjoy the fruits of his labors. It is just that simple. But again, is he applying God's justice properly? Is Job guilty of whatever he is accusing him of? And is the moral traditions of the world enough to help Job? Even Bildad's rejoicing sounds brief and effortless. Like he didn't really mean what he was saying. Again, Bildad's system sounds a lot like the religions of the world. Many religions rely on sense experience. Wisdom is written in the stars. Or we need to communicate with our ancestors to know the truth. It is a simple system that ignores the fact that God's ways cannot be understood only in nature or the circumstances of certain people. Everyone has a simple answer to what God is doing while ignoring the fact that he must also reveal himself and his ways to us. And even then, 
we will not fully understand how God governs the world and universe. Yes, he is always just, but he is also the just and justifier of all those who have faith in him. And he uses both just and unjust people and occurrences of the world for his own glory and for our good. And just like over the years, people have confused the Christian work ethic as a blueprint for success. That is not what it is. The Christian work ethic that is revealed in Scripture, specifically 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, does not promise success and wealth. What it does promise is contentment of mind and conscience. You haven't broken God's law to survive. You haven't stolen or killed anyone to eat. You have daily bread rather than blood on your hands. Well, the same is true with righteousness. We are not called to be righteous so that good things will happen to us. We are not righteous in order to earn God's favor. We are called to righteousness out of gratitude for what God has already done for us. So anytime we come across a simple religious system such as Bildad's, we must ask ourselves, is it true? Is it true? Is it true according to what God has revealed in Scripture as well as what He's revealed in nature? How often do we see the righteous suffer and the unrighteous, the unbelieving, live long and healthy lives? Quite often. And their lives are made up of ignoring God and His Word. And God continues to prolong their lives. And we don't have the answer as to why. See, Christianity teaches the exact opposite of what Bildad teaches Job here. The suffering of the righteous becomes sort of like the norm. And who normed that norm? It was Jesus Christ himself. The most righteous man who has ever lived is the one who suffered the most. He lived a life of suffering up until his suffering on the cross. So for Bildad, if there is no room for undeserved suffering, then there is no room for the sacrificial, substitutionary suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no room for grace, unmerited favor. So there would be no comfort for Job. And there would be no comfort... For you and I, when we go through suffering, we would all conclude when we're suffering, God must hate me. He must be mad at me. No. That's just a simple system that build that chair with Job. It's not that simple. Now, suffering may teach us something about ourselves and it may lead us into deeper fellowship with God, but there's no simple answer. We know in the book of Job, there is no specific answer to the question, why does Job suffer? But we can answer that question more generally. We know that Job's patient suffering and his faith will bring glory to God. 
James said, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for their good. Job is not being punished for his sins. He is a believer declared righteous and blameless by God. But there is redemption in his suffering. He is walking the way of the cross. When Jesus would go to the cross, he wasn't being punished for his sins. He was without sin. Rather, he stood in our place and took on the wrath of God for our sins. He took on what we deserve. So consider your sufferings today, beloved. It is not because God hates you or that you are no longer his. But it is an opportune time to know your God better. Because we know that, this, that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Bildad couldn't see that because it is an internal work that would lead Paul to later conclude, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is not only the pattern we will see in the book of Job, but it is also the pattern of the believer's life. There will be a glory revealed that when we look back, we will say, I can't believe that I was worried. While this whole time, I was in my father's care. Amen. Let us pray.